that it is probably my favorite season, maybe other than Lent and Easter, um, just because they, they mean so much. You know, it's hard to say which one I like more. But one of the things that we have lost as a society, in my opinion, is any notion of the difference between the time of Advent and the time of Christmas. And what I'm going to be talking to, about today may be completely foreign to some of you, maybe all of you, uh, or most of you, that is uh, this idea that there is a distinct faithfulness that God has kept to his people, Israel. Now, I by no means am talking about the nation of Israel as it exists on the earth today. That is a completely separate topic and, and discussion that would take weeks to have and, um, and, and to properly uh, do. But this week, what I'm, what I'm wanting to do is highlight the, uh, what the scriptures say is the main importance of the coming of Jesus. Most of us today, we believe that Jesus has come to uh, free us of our sins, to pay our penalty of death, and that is true, but within the context of how Yahweh had been operating throughout the earth for thousands of years, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the promises of God to the people of Israel. And that is exactly what the season of Advent reminds us to and calls us to. It calls us to rediscover once again the truth about the faithfulness of our Father Yahweh. And so, um, as we um, as we talk about this uh, this season, as we celebrate, as we learn to appreciate God's dealings with His people, um, I thought it mindful to cover uh, some of the Old Testament prophecies that speak about the coming of our Lord. And one of the things uh, that that entails is understanding God's role as a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. Many of us are familiar with the idea of, of in the New Testament, that, that the church is the bride of Christ. But I, I would want to uh, tell you that although you can plainly see that in the New Testament, it may not be the case that you have plainly seen that in the Old Testament, that Israel was Yahweh's bride. And that's pretty much the core message of, of our, our talk today. So we're, we want to look at God's faithfulness. And in that way, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about five separate ideas that there are specific attitudes that we should have while celebrating Advent. While celebrating this time as we approach the the wonderful time of Christmas, there is a posture that I think behooves us, it it becomes us, to to take this posture in our hearts and to uh, dialogue with the Lord on a heart level regarding these attitudes that Advent brings to us. Just as Lent, a time of repentance and fasting, comes before Easter, so also Advent comes before Christmas. And in the context of this, uh, Jesus Christ coming into the earth to fulfill the promises of God, Yahweh's faithfulness has to be contrasted to the the infidelity or adultery of Israel or their unfaithfulness. Now, um, many of us, we know that Christ's bride at the end of the age is going to be a pure and spotless bride, but his bride, this idea of Christ's bride, is a continuous idea throughout the scriptures. It is not a New Testament invention that the the church or the people of God is the bride of God. Uh, And in fact, all marriage throughout all of of the years of of God's creation has always been about a, a demonstration of the marriage between God and his people. 
And so uh, to highlight that, we're going to look at the, both the, the covenant ceremony that enacted the marriage between Yahweh and Israel and the, the uh, infidelity that Israel has. Now, just so you understand, all of the minor prophets and major prophets, they're constantly bringing up a theme of Israel's infidelity. Now, I would submit to you, if those prophets are true and the scripture cannot be broken, Israel cannot be infi- uh, infidelous or, uh, or unfaithful as a bride unless she was first a bride. Now, we're not going to cover all of the themes in Exodus that establish that marriage covenant between Yahweh and Israel, but, but I, be- I would submit to you, if you study it out, if you look for the themes, they're there and they're there in a significant way. Now, again, in the New Testament, Paul just asserts the fact that Christ has a bride and that bride is the church. Nowhere is it shown the marriage ceremony uh, in, by which Jesus betroths the bride to himself, other than the fact that he pays the penalty of atonement, which uh, satisfied the requirements of the law to redeem an infidelous bride. There's a lot uh, there that we can't cover today, um, but I would I just want to frame today's discussion in those terms. So uh, even, if you, even if that idea is completely foreign to you, uh, just go with it for today and uh, search it out for yourself. I can point you in the right direction if you'd like to talk about it after the service. It's a phenomenally beautiful uh, major theme of the Old Testament. And without the, that theme, without being able to recognize that theme, we cannot understand the minor or major prophets. And most of the celebration of Advent will be meaningless to us. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to look at how Jesus Christ, in the midst of that extreme darkness of Israel's uh, adultery, uh, Jesus Christ comes into the earth as the light of the world. Why does he come? He comes to turn them away from their uh, adultery. And he does that in a way in in which he is totally victorious. So we're going to be looking at Christ's victory, not just on the cross, but also that Christmas, his actual appearing, was the initial blow against the forces of darkness which began the ever-rolling increase of his victories. We're going to look at how Jesus was birthed, or that is what Isaiah talks about, that he will will be born unto us, and then Isaiah skips no time at all. He just moves right from that verse to talking about the reason Jesus Christ was born was to sit on the throne of David. And then finally, with all of what we're going to learn, I, I just want to echo these, this idea that there are appropriate attitudes that we should have while we celebrate Advent. So um, as we begin our celebration of this season, I want you to notice the context in which Christ's birth takes place. It doesn't take place in the midst of the Roman Empire. It doesn't take place in the midst of Greco-minded thought throughout all of the you know, region of antiquity, Jesus Christ's birth takes place in the context of the people of Israel. God doesn't just move right after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. He just doesn't send his son immediately. And you have to ask yourself, if you're going to be a student of God's word, why is that? If, if the scriptures truly are the, the word of the Lord, if they really are the, the record of God's dealing with his people, it, the, uh, the record of God's unfolding plan of redemption, then why is it not the case that Matthew comes right after Genesis? What was God doing on the earth through his people Israel that he wanted to prepare or wanted to set in motion things that would set a stage for his son to come? Hebrews talks about Jesus coming 
at the fullness of the times. What does that mean? What does the fullness of the times mean? And so uh, this, this idea that we are in this season, it, it, it calls us to examine why did God not just simply send his son right after Adam and Eve's sin? I mean, it, you know, if you, if you, you think about it in your own reasoning, it would make a lot of sense. If the way of salvation was made manifest to the earth, perhaps many more would have come to Christ. I don't believe that is the case. I believe that it was God's plan to demonstrate the the wickedness of man in his sin apart from Christ, and that he did that throughout all of the stories of the old covenant. However, you also have to understand that God is not just simply reacting to darkness and wanting to show the evilness of man apart from him, but he also is forming a people so that all eyes would be on them. In celebrating Advent, we also enter into a remembrance or a re-experiencing of the waiting of Israel as she waited for her Messiah. Now, at many times, Israel waited in an unfaithful way, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But we too, just like Israel, we wait for the return of our Lord. The New Testament, I, I argue this time and time again, the New Testament does not use the language of dying and going to heaven. It uses the language of Jesus Christ returning to the earth to hand over the kingdom to the Father. And that picture of Jesus Christ returning to judge the nations and bless his people and hand over the kingdom to the Father, where Yahweh will reign with his people in the new Jerusalem, that picture is a radically different desire than dying and going to heaven. If you study it out, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole entire book of Revelation, 2 Peter, it all is about the return of God to take back his creation, which rebelled through Adam and Eve and was usurped by Satan. And this is the resurrection, the restoration that God wants to accomplish. The earth, which had died in its purpose as a place where image bearers of God would, would worship Yahweh, that purpose was shattered at the garden, and God is all about restoring that experience. And so we are too, just like Israel is waiting for their Messiah, we too are waiting for the Lord. Now, I'm not speaking of Israel today waiting for their Messiah. The Messiah has totally come in the flesh, Jesus Christ alone. So hear me when I say I'm, I'm just speaking about Israel as the faithful people of God in the intertestamental period and the years before, waiting for Jesus Christ to arrive on the scene. Many of them did not recognize him. However, most of them did. If you look at the call of John the Baptist, it's at what was his purpose? His purpose was that many would turn to their God. In the book of Acts, it says many even of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees turned to Jesus. And a great multitude of the people of Israel actually did become Christians. That's a history lesson in and of itself, which we neglect today. But God was not unfaithful to the faithful children of Abraham. As the book of Galatians points out, it is not the children of Abraham, the nationality of Israel, that is the children of faith, but it is those who are of faith that are the children of Abraham. It's not that because you're a Jew, you are necessarily a child of God. It is because you are a child of God, you are a true Jew or a Jew in the heart. That is, you are a faithful believer in Yahweh. You're a faithful worshiper of Yahweh because you believe in his promises. And it's these promises that we conquer through life for. We, our primary hope is not dying and going to heaven, but rather that Jesus Christ will return to the earth, judge the nations, demonstrate the wickedness of evil, judge it, and reward his people and, and 
put blessings upon them. And we will live for him, with him for an, forever and ever. That is apostolic New Testament Christianity. And so this time that we're experiencing, these next four weeks, this is a time for reflection. Are we truly longing for Jesus Christ, not just to be born, but also to return? And with this, are we, are we remembering Christ's birth in the context of why did he come? That's the question we must ask ourselves. Why did Jesus come? Why was it necessary for the Son of God to come in flesh and to, to put on skin, as it were, and walk among us? He came, uh, admittedly, primarily to atone for the sins of the world. But more than that, Jesus Christ comes as a fulfillment to all the promises that Yahweh had made to the people of God. He came to renew them and to refresh them, to restore them. He was like coming in after Adam. After Adam had destroyed the garden, you can imagine Jesus as, as coming into the land of Israel and forming it anew, putting back all the things that need to be there, weeding out the garden, removing the branches that, don't, uh, that aren't bearing fruit, and planting a garden where, wherein God would again meet with his people in the spirit of the day. And so beyond all the hustle and bustle, all of the trees and the gifts that we give, I'm all for those things, but I would submit to you, just as I, I warned us a few weeks before Thanksgiving, that there is a different way of celebrating Thanksgiving. There's a different way of celebrating Advent. There's a different way of celebrating Christmas in a way that is markedly different than what the way in which the pagans celebrate this. Now, when I, when I talked about the dangers of the greed of Black Friday, I, um, I failed to mention this uh, at the time, but if, if you'd like to, there's a wonderful website that you can visit later today. It's blackfridaydeathwatch.com. Now, this is terrible, but I, I, want to, I want to press upon you the soberness of what I was saying. The, the people in our country who do not follow God, they take Thanksgiving, and rather than being thankful, they pervert it and use it as an excuse to multiply their greed. And, and at this website, it tells us already, I, I looked at it two days ago, it's possible that the death count has risen, but in, the, in Black Friday this last week, seven people died in our country as a result of being trampled or injured through various greed manifestations and mob-like mentality as there were beast-like stampedes to get better deals so that they can worship their almighty dollar. Now, I would submit to you that the manifestation of the Spirit in a believer's life does not concord with the lack of patience that was exhibited in those events. Not only did seven people actually die, 88 people are in critical condition at this point. Now, I'm not saying you need to be thankful so that people don't die. What I'm saying is that that is a clearly different way of celebrating Thanksgiving. The fruit of that celebration is death. The fruit of thanksgiving, the true worship to Yahweh, true thankfulness, that is life, joy, and peace. It's certainly not death. Maybe, perhaps, you were giving thanks to God and your turkey deep fryer exploded and it killed someone. That's possible. Uh, that doesn't mean you're not worshiping Yahweh, but what I'm telling you is it is manifestly evident that the greed-like behavior that drove people to trample on other image bearers of God is nothing other than greed. And so, 
as we live in this culture, we must celebrate these days in a winsome way. We must celebrate them in a way that is distinct and that ha- it, it has a pleasing aroma. As in, when, when the unbelievers in our life see the different way that we celebrate these things, both the attitudes and the way in which we celebrate, they will be attracted to the life that is there. If God is drawing unbelievers who are in our midst as we celebrate these days, they will taste something of life there, and they'll be attracted to it. So um, that's that's what I mean when we have when I say that there is a different way of celebrating Christmas. There's a different way of celebrating the approach to Christmas other than the way that our culture calls us to celebrate it. I'm not saying you can't have a tree. I'm not saying you can't have gifts. I'm not even saying that you can't have a tree because it was originally used for Norse stuff, whatever. Uh, God made trees, and they're beautiful, and you should have them in your home. But in the way that you celebrate Christmas, the attitudes with, with which you celebrate, the way in which you celebrate unto the Lord as worship will change the effect that, that your celebration produces. So, with that in mind, uh, this celebration around Christmas, we, we need to, uh, in order to redeem uh, this celebration from the attempts of the evil uh, pagans in our day to pervert it, we need to use the scriptures to form a hedge of protection around what does Christmas mean to us as the people of God. So, with that in mind, I want to cover, in a whirlwind time, 3,000 years of history uh, in about 30, to 30 seconds to a minute. If you don't remember the story, this is basically the summary of the Old Testament scriptures. Adam, after God created the world, Adam usurped God's authority and overthrew uh, God's order in the garden. He allowed Satan to become the god of this world, as Paul calls him in the book of Romans. Uh, man grows desperately wicked after he's kicked out of the garden. There's a line of, of righteousness, that is the line of Seth, and then there's a line of Cain, and uh, where Cain killed Abel. When you see Jesus in Matthew 23, 24, 25, give the woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, all the righteous blood from who? Abel to Zechariah. What Jesus is doing is saying to the Pharisees, you are children of the devil and your father is the devil all the way back to when Cain killed Abel. This is how how total the scriptures are. And so man grows desperately wicked. God wipes out man uh, and spares Noah and his family to produce a remnant of faithful image bearers on the earth. The nations, they rebel after the flood. Instead of being dispersed, they gather at Babel. God comes down and confuses their language and sends them out into the earths so that they would be ready to see God's glory come on Israel. God chooses Abraham, sends Abraham to a land that he hasn't seen, then tells Abraham's children to go down to Egypt. In Egypt, Israel grows and uh, becomes uh, entangled in the entrapments of Egypt, both their idolatry and the slavery. And God brings Israel out of bondage. This is an act of grace before the giving of the law. God brings Israel out of bondage and chooses them as his special treasure and special people in the earth. Now, that was Genesis and Exodus in two minutes. Um, there's 54 chapters, I think, in Genesis, and many, uh, just as many... Uh, 
pages in Exodus. I think there's 36 in Exodus. I'm terrible at chapter memories. But that entire passage of the scripture is like 12% of our total scriptures. There's, there's a ton there that we need to know and, and learn from. And this is the unfolding plan of God. God is setting up the nations so that they will grow and they will be ready to see God's glory being displayed in Israel so that at the right time, he'll send his son and the, the nations will be ready to look to the king of Israel. So the question again is, why didn't God just send his son right after the fall? And the answer that we have to come to, although we won't know it fully, is that God is more glorified by working in and through his people, his image bearers, to overthrow Satan's rebellion than if he just did it himself in an immediate way. Yes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who totally overcomes Satan, but it's done in the context of people that God had formed and given promise to over thousands of years. And this is the context in which we celebrate Christianity or Christmas. This includes setting the world stage so all the nations are going to look to Israel. And this is the purpose that Yahweh used in choosing Israel and betrothed himself to her. Again, if you haven't ever heard of this idea that, that Yahweh betrothed Israel to himself, uh, it's, it's seen in the language of the giving of, of blessing and covenant exchanges in Exodus in chapters 19 through 24, and even some after that. Now, in this context, that of God's faithfulness to Israel, God chose Israel not because of the fact that Israel was great. In fact, every other nation other than Israel had already become great in power, wealth, numbers, uh, regional influence, governmental reach, land that they controlled. Israel was actually the least significant of all the nations around her, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, etc. And, and yet, God cho- chose Israel in a special way and gave her all of these blessings and promises and, and, and a land and a, and a law and a country, and yet Israel plays the harlot. She does not remain faithful. In Jeremiah 1, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? The question is rhetorical. Of course not. Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. This is the main theme of the major and minor prophets that Israel has turned away. This is actually the entire theme of the book of Hosea. And, and this, is a, this is not just one passage in Jeremiah. It's actually the case that Ezekiel 16, this chapter is filled with the most heart-wrenching language in all of the scriptures with depictions of how vile Israel had become with her adultery. And in this way, her adultery and idolatry, although they're different words, they are the same thing for her. God says that she manifests in the the book of Ezekiel. The prophet says that Israel multiplied her whorings with all of the different idols that they established on every hill. At one point, it says in that chapter, is there not a hill that has been undefiled? uh, Or is there a hill that has been undefiled in all of Israel? That is, everywhere that God commanded them not to make a temple, not to establish a place of prayer, they had put an idol-making factory or a, a, a demonic temple on every single high place in Israel. This is a terrible, terribly heart-wrenching state for this t- for, to take place. Yahweh, God himself, 
the, the, the true manifestation of love and, and mercy chooses this people, and yet she runs from him. This is a desperate picture, and it's an image of our unfaithfulness before we have been redeemed by Jesus. So Israel turns after these other gods surrounding uh, of the nations that are surrounding her, and she goes completely against her role. Her role in, in this covenant that Yahweh had established was to be a gem for all the nations to look to, and yet she plays the harlot with their gods. This is an extreme betrayal of the marriage covenant. And so Isaiah prophesies in this context. This is the, this is the context for Isaiah's prophecies of redemption. This is what Christmas is about, that God will establish a new covenant with Israel, although she had been extremely unfaithful. This is the major message of Hosea. God tells Hosea to marry a harlot, and he pulls her out of her harlotry, he pulls her out of her whoring, and he, he becomes faithful to her. He establishes her with a home, they have children, and yet Hosea uh, finds that his wife goes back to her adultery. She goes back to the things that she uh, was doing before he had called her out of that. And this is exactly what Israel has done in her history. Though Israel has been extremely unfaithful, the ever-merciful Yahweh calls her back to himself in the midst of this darkness. This is the context for the coming of Christ. It is not just that Jesus comes to pay for sin and to atone for the nations. He comes to bring back his bride to himself. Isaiah 9 verse 1, this is where we'll get into our reading today. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Who is this she who is in anguish? This is nothing other than Israel who is off in captivity because of her idolatry. In the former time, he being God brought her into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. Now the way of the sea in the scriptures is talking about the, the, the fact that Yahweh wants to bring salvation to all the nations. The sea becomes a picture very quickly in Old Testament language of the Gentiles and of, of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And so Isaiah is prophesying that, that God is going to make glorious this way towards the sea, the, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This, in my mind, is speaking of amazing restoration. Isaiah prophesies about the glory that will be displayed in this, in this area called the Galilee of the nations. This is nothing other than a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus will perform many miracles in the land of Galilee, and they were done as signs and wonders so that, God so that the people of God would truly know that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah's continuing to speak of this redemption from God, and he foretells this time of light that is coming into Israel. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. This is the context for Jesus' coming. When, when you imagine the nativity scene, the fact that Jesus was born in a low, obscure place, dark, far away, in a little town called Bethlehem that was the least significant of all the towns, just as Israel was the least significant of all the nations, this extreme darkness is the background from which the light of the world enters into. 
This darkness comes about in the intertestamental period between the close of the minor prophets in the Old Testament and where we open in Matthew. If you've never uh, thought about this, the, the Old Covenant doesn't actually speak about the Pharisees or the Sadducees, um, but when we get into Matthew, they show up. And so there's a little bit of history that we need to examine uh, of how this took place. Now, we don't have time to discuss all of the different uh, things that happened in Second Temple Judaism that aren't recorded in our scriptures, uh, but suffice it to say that these religious factions, they, they arose in Israel. And they started to assert their credentials as being a um, series of teachers. Uh, apart from the priestly system that God had established, this rabbinic Judaism had begun to grow up where certain teachers would have disciples, and their disciples would uh, then become rabbis and so on and so forth. And it's kind of like the breeding of dogs. You, you only breed pure breeds of dogs if you have certain papers that assert the quality of the breed, the heritage, the lineage of that dog. And so this idea is that all of these teachers are accumulating to themselves their own glory. They were not the priesthood that Yahweh had established, but rather they were their own religious system. And in fact, John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers, associating them as children of Satan rather than children of Abraham in, in Matthew 3 when he begins to confront them. He says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath does not come on the faithful people of God, but rather on the children of Satan. And so this idea that John the Baptist is calling the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, a brood of vipers and children of Satan, seeds of the serpent that deceived Eve, this is an extremely dark period. Imagine, for example, that you lived in a land where all the religious leaders were children of Satan. That's, that's a demonic oppression that is over the, the nation of Israel at this time. Jesus says that in Matthew 23, it, he says that they have sat down on the seat of Moses, but, but they don't have any authority to. He also accuses them of shutting men out of the kingdom. That is, they put all of these burdens on man, but they themselves are unwilling to lift even a finger to be merciful to those who truly want to, to seek after God. He says they go around the whole earth looking for a, a disciple, and then once they find one who will actually listen to them, they make them into twice a son of hell as they themselves are. Jesus calls them sons of hell. That is the darkness that is over the nation of Israel, and that's the darkness into which the light of the world is born to undo that darkness. Like a diamond backed by a, a, a backing of black velvet, this is the spiritual climate in which Christ comes to rescue us. Now, again, this idea that we, as the bride of Christ now, we are a continuation of the faithful people of God throughout all of the scriptures. And so with that in mind, this is why Christmas is so magnificent to us. Because in the time of great darkness, when we had thrown off restraint from God and, and had corrupt teachers who were persuading us into doctrines of demons, into this, God remains faithful to us by sending his son, Jesus. Isaiah continues to talk about the, the light that comes into the world, and he says, you, speaking of God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, this is 
old covenant infused language. How are they joy when they are joyful at the harvest? This is talking about the feast celebrations that Israel celebrates at the time of, of ingathering, which we have basically celebrated in Thanksgiving. What what Isaiah is saying here is that God has created through what through this light that's coming into this deep darkness land, this light has created a perpetual thanksgiving, a perpetual feast. He goes on and says, the, they rejoice before you as they are glad in the same manner that they are glad when they divide the spoil. Concerning multiplication of the nation, many in Israel turn to Christ and they bear fruit, and likewise the Hellenistic Jews and Greeks who turn to Christ in the book of Acts and the first century actually for, fulfill this great multiplication that takes place in the nation of Israel. And the victory that Christ brings to us is a joyful victory. He says, Isaiah says that the people rejoice as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so Jesus's victory is greater than, it's in the context, but it's greater than all the plunder of Egypt when Israel went out of Egypt and all the Egyptians favor was in their hearts toward the people of Israel and they gave all their gold and silver and precious stones to Israel as Israel was leaving Egypt. Not only had God destroyed Egypt as an economic and military power, but also the people of God, as they were leaving, God put favor on them and they plundered the Egyptians. Just as when Israel through Joshua went into the land and destroyed the nations and put everything that was evil to death and, and took their gold and silver and used it for the decoration of Yahweh's temple so that the glory of God would be manifest in his dwelling place, Isaiah is saying that the joy that Jesus Christ brings in his uh, arrival through the light entering into the dark world, that joy is greater than all the victories that God had given his people of Israel. And without a context that Jesus Christ's arrival, the, the celebration of Christmas, is done in the people of Israel, we can't see that beauty. That is a magnificent vision that Jesus Christ, his victory over death and darkness is a greater victory and it was the thing that all these other victories were foreshadowing. And so after telling about this great light and joy, Isaiah describes the reason for their rejoicing. He makes it plain. He says in Isaiah 9:4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. God uh, is prophesying through Isaiah. It's slightly confusing if you don't notice the language, but he says, you have broken his burden. That is, there's a burden on this person, and the person is is known as as Jacob or Israel. There's these different themes in the Old Covenant of Jacob or Israel being God's son, and at the same time, Israel is the bride of Christ or the bride of Yahweh. And so, Isaiah is saying that Jesus or this person who comes, the light that comes into the dark world, he has broken the rod of the oppressor. That is, there was this person named Satan, an oppressor, and he had rule over a people and a place because he had become the God of this age. And it says that this light that comes into the land, it has broken the rod of the oppressor. The rod is nothing other than 
a, a sign of authority and power. When a king sits on a throne, um, we don't have very many kings these days. Perhaps you may have seen if the Queen of England has ever been on TV. Uh, they sit on thrones, they're crowned, which talks about glory, and then r the rod that they have is usually, you know, it's gilded and there's gemstones on it and it's beautiful, and the rod is the symbol of authority and power. And whenever a king or a ruler exercises his rod, it is done to bring out a military victory or to oppress or to liberate or, or whatever. And what Isaiah is saying is the power of darkness that was over the land, Jesus Christ has broken that power. He's broken the rod of the oppressor. And he, Isaiah goes on and connects it to the victory that was done in Midian. Now, what is the day of Midian? Perhaps... It, it may be helpful to uh, to look at, but in the book of Judges, Judges 7 and 8, Gideon makes a victory over the nation of, uh, over the Midianites. They were oppressing Israel, and they were keeping Israel down, and God, throughout the book of Judges, rose up a deliverer to defeat, uh, in a military way, the oppressors who were harassing the people of Israel. And, and this is sent, and in Isaiah 9, he's saying that this victory is just like it was in the day of Midian. But what did Gideon's victory begin with? This is where it comes home to, to the fact that Christ truly has liberated us. Gideon's victory began before he led the army with first chopping down the idol that his father had set up in the altar to Baal. Now, this is exactly what Isaiah means to do by connecting it to the day of Midian. Isaiah means to say that Jesus' victory not only is against darkness that was covering over the land, but also the darkness that is in our hearts. This is what understanding the major prophets in connection to all of the Old Covenant and their foreshadowing to Christ does for us. It allows us to make sense of the scriptures. In the same way, Jesus Christ breaks the power of Satan that oppresses Israel in her captivity. But further than that, Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin and evil that enticed Israel into adultery in the first place. This is how powerful and deep Jesus' victory in coming is. His defeat of the devil did not simply take place on the cross, but the very entry of light into the world was the beginning of Jesus' victory. In Isaiah 9-6, he goes on to, to describe what is the purpose of all of this. If you remember the connecting language, he says, for, for, for. And then he, there's a capstone on this section of prophecy. Isaiah says, why did the victory happen? Why are they glad? Why have, they, why have the people in darkness seen a great light? What is the people, what are the people seeing when, when he says that the people who were in darkness have seen a light? He says, what the reason is this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." Jesus Christ not only destroys the power of sin, but he himself is revealed as the foundation of God's order. I, Isaiah describes here a situation in which the government shall rest on Christ's shoulders. No longer do we have judges who deliver the land for a time or a king who rules over the land and then you know, conquers militarily, but now Jesus Christ is the center point of God's order in his people. 
Isaiah describes this situation, and this exactly uh, is what has come to pass. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is saying that Jesus Christ, this child who was born to us, the son who was given, the son who will be the everlasting God, the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, he will reign on the throne of David, and there will be no end to the increase of his government and of his peace. This prophecy means nothing to us if we don't understand that the great failure of all the kings in Israel was that they were never able to conquer the land that God had given them. David had almost done it, and Solomon had almost done it, but those two kings didn't completely drive out the inhabitants of the land. What had God told Moses and Joshua as the people of Israel were entering the land? You shall put all the nations under the ban. You shall destroy them all and take the spoils for for Yahweh. And they were never able to do it. Through a lack of zeal, a lack of obedience to God's word, a timidity, a lack of ability to rise up and obey the word of the Lord, the Israelites were never able to conquer the land that God had given them. And it is because they did not conquer that land that they went back into idolatry. They were disobedient in following God's word to drive out the sin that existed in their land, and that in turn led them into sin. And so when Isaiah is saying that there is this wonderful counselor, this this person who will sit on the throne of David, and there will be no end to the increase of his government, Isaiah is saying to the people of Israel, there will be a fulfillment of God's promise to David. God had promised David, because of your great faithfulness to me, because you have acted towards me in this way, I make a, a covenant with you. You will never lack an heir to sit on the throne of David. And this can be nothing other than God himself, because there has to be someone who will live forever and ever. If there's going to be someone who sits on the throne forever, there has to be someone who will live forever. And this is the context in which Jesus is the king over Israel. What happens at Jesus's coronation uh, is that he is glorified with the Holy Spirit after he ascended. But before that, when Jesus Christ is on the cross, what is the title placed by the Romans over his cross? The King of the Jews. Jesus Christ in his death is coronated as the king of the Jews, the true fulfillment of God's promise to David. And that is what we celebrate in Christmas. We celebrate that God is a faithful God. He has not broken his promises. Although we have gone off into idolatry and manifold nature, you know, ways of sinning, God has been faithful and he has totally fulfilled all of his covenant promises. So the birth of Jesus is done looking forward to his ascension, and it is to this end that his birth is the birth of a king. It is not just because we recognize Jesus as the light of the world, but it is also because God said, I will be faithful to my servant David. I will fulfill my promises. And we're now in that time when Jesus Christ, seated on the throne, as we see in Revelation 1 through 7, uh, 
Jesus Christ is now sitting on the throne of David, ruling and reigning over his kingdom, and light is continuing to fill the earth. And it's, the gospel is continuing to progress throughout the nations. And we're in that time when his government and peace are growing. Jesus is reigning on the throne of David even now, and now we await the day when he will come to bring the fullness to his kingdom and hand it over to the Father, as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. That is the context in which we celebrate Advent. Now, if you're like me, um, about 10 years ago, all of that would have seemed like not even remotely related to Christianity for me. What I would encourage you in this season of Advent, is that Advent calls us back to a time to really be people of God's Word. If we as Protestant believers, we believe that God's Word alone is sufficient for uh, health, restoration, uh, coming to God, then we ought to be familiar with its major themes and understand what God is doing through the Scriptures. Just because we're not Jewish doesn't mean we don't read the Old Testament. And yet, because of various things in our culture, many of us have, have become ignorant of what the Old Testament teaches. And that is an indictment both on us as individuals and us as a church, uh, not just this church, but the church in America. We need to be faithful to preach all of God's word. And I would submit to you that just as a beautiful picture of Christ truly fulfilling the promises of God to David and, and Jesus re-betrothing his bride to himself after her infidelity, that God's mercy and faithfulness are displayed in those ways, that without a knowledge of what the Old Covenant says, Christmas will not be precious to us. Yes, we may receive and give gifts, and that may be good for, for uh for a number of things to extend Christian, uh, you know, charity and mercy and such, but but the true spiritual adoration and worship, the reason the wise men were able to know how precious Jesus was, is because they had the prophecies and they searched through them. And so these are the attitudes for Advent. This year, let's capture the true meaning of Christmas by preparing faithfully through this uh, through this time. Before we can see Christ as truly precious. It's my opinion that we must see our profound need of him. And before Christmas can be a delight, it first must be an indictment or an accusation about our condition. So with that, we're going to um, have Leah come and she's going to read and then um, we're going to light the Advent candle. And and at this time, um, let's just uh, do this in a, in a quiet way, but a memorable way. And then after that... Um, we're going to uh, take communion together, and then we're going to have a, a wonderful meal of fellowship.